Right, I want to share a, a sort of thing on my heart this week with you, which is for all of us, it, I think it, don't switch off if you're a Christian, because it's going to be such a familiar passage in a moment, but I want you to listen, because I believe God wants to say something to all of us. Have you ever heard the phrase, God forsaken? Well, I'm sure you have. Something is God forsaken. If something or somewhere or someone is God forsaken, it means they're abandoned, that they, you know, God doesn't have anything to do with them, that God's left them. It's a pretty grim phrase to use. Um, destitute, uh, without hope, those sort of things associated with it. Well, actually, this morning I want to look at a man who was forsaken by God and a man who was found by God. And uh, the way it falls out in the story that Jesus told is a bit unusual or maybe a surprise to some. I think it probably was to his first hearers, and I trust it will get home to us with a similar impact. We're going to read Luke 18 and verse 9, verses 9 to 14. So Luke 18 and verse 9. We have no PowerPoint today. I didn't do that this week. Uh, Well, Marion didn't do that this week because I didn't ask her to. I don't do those sort of things very easily, but Marion does. But Anyway, you found it now. Well, I've told you all that, my personal battles this week. Right. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be Exalted. Now, parables are like cartoons. They are exaggerated in a way. They are caricatures that are exaggerated to make a point. And actually, they are meant to make just one or two powerful points. They've got a sting in the tail sometimes or a a clear uh, sort of thrust to them and to their teaching. They're not something you're supposed to pick apart and try and find uh, an allegorical sort of explanation for everything. They are challenging, they're meant to be thought-provoking, and actually they're often uncomfortable. And this one is an uncomfortable one when you get into it. This one is about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and Jesus wouldn't have had to do any more than tell the story to get the point to his first audience. But for us just to get a little further, it needs a minute or two to just think, what does that mean, that it's about a Pharisee and a tax collector? Now, they would have both been Jews... And they would have gone to the temple for the hour of prayer. So that's why they're both praying. They're both Jews. They've gone to pray at the hour of prayer in the temple. Now, background-wise, Pharisees. Now, you probably know, but let's just be a little clear what they were. Pharisees were a very religious group. Now, we've got 2,000 years of tradition and understanding some of the things Jesus said that might just cank us a little bit. But that first audience would not have automatically thought that they were hypocritical or anything. They would have seen them as highly pious, devoted people. 
They endeavoured to keep the detail of the Old Testament law. They were very concerned about the way standards were slipping and the law was being diluted. And so they were very conscientious about keeping to the details of the law. They also added to that the traditions of the fathers, which was really the interpretation of the law, the application. And if there weren't enough rules already in the Old Testament, they added a good few more so that you could know whether to tithe your mint and your rue. You knew how far you could actually walk on a Sabbath or was it actually working to sort of pick something up and sort of peel an apple and eat it. Now, is that work or not? They really helped you out on all that. They, they sort of gave you all the details. They were considered very pious. They were certainly very religious. And they certainly saw themselves as at the forefront of religion, at the forefront of piety. And, uh, you know, they'd really have problems eating with anybody who, who had a low standard of the law. But they were right up there when people thought of holy people. And then there's the tax collector. Now, really, there were two types. Actually, there were two types of, ba- of tax collector. The two types were the bad ones and the very bad ones. And, and they did actually fit into two slightly different categories. The bad ones collected the direct taxes that the Romans levied. The Romans were the occupying force in Palestine. They were not popular. Think of Americans in Afghanistan or whatever you like, Americans in Iraq. They were not popular and they levied taxes. The Romans levied two direct taxes. One was a land tax and the other was what we have had little knowledge of, a poll tax, i.e. for every head you paid a tax. Now that was direct. That went straight to the Roman authorities and the Romans employed local people to collect it. Now, that was the bad tax collectors. They went and directly collected. You knew exactly what you've got to pay. Simon here has got to pay 100 quid for his head. So I come and take his 100 pounds. But as I do that, I've got a couple of beefy Roman soldiers backing me up. So Simon's going to cough up unless he's silly. So basically, it wasn't exactly a popular role, but it was slightly legit. And it was unpleasant. People were seen as colluding with the enemy and uh, they were not liked at all. Then there were the very bad ones. Now, the very bad ones are quite interesting. They collected the customs duties and the taxes levied on goods. And do you know how the Romans worked that? It's fascinating. What they did was they allowed people to bid for the privilege of collecting these taxes over a period of time. So you could say... Roman authorities, I'll give you 5,000 drachma to be allowed to collect all the customs and duties in this area for the next two years. The Romans would take the bids in and they'd go for the highest bid. Say, fine, Brian, you've done well. Okay, we'll have your... And then the Romans would have your 5,000 drachma, which that was all they were interested in. You gave them the 5,000 drachma and for that, they licensed you to collect whatever you could collect. You are now the official tax collector. For the next two years, you can collect all the duties and taxes. Our authorities will back you up. The old burly Roman soldiers are on your side. You have an official right. And what these people did was they just stopped people anywhere and levied taxes. And if you went on a long journey, you might find you were stopped several times. I want a tenth of your goods. I want a twentieth of your goods. They, they were allowed to collect whatever they liked. They'd already paid their chunk to the Romans. And now you, could just, you had a license to collect money from other people. And it was backed up by the authorities. And you think, whoa, it was like institutionalised robbery. And that's what people thought about. Do you know, I was preparing this week and something came on the television news that I thought, that's vaguely familiar. That's a bit like what I'm reading and thinking about. Wheel clampers. 
Anybody see this on the news? Wheel clamping cars. Apparently now you can apply online for a license to wheel clamp. And this is, it only ever starts, doesn't it, in places like South London and Kent. There's a, a bit of a rash of this now. It's starting, it'll soon get everywhere. Guys of very shady character can apply online for a license to wheel clamp. You can buy a wheel clamping kit for under £1,000, which is about half a dozen wheel clamps and some nice big signs to stick on people's thing. And basically, you can operate how you like, not obviously on the ordinary roads, but on private land or, or private roads. And I know Ryan and Ellie suffered from this, didn't you? Well, on, on a road where you, you can get wheel clamps and then to get your clamp off, it'll cost you three or four hundred pounds. How much did it cost you? 450 quid. Eh? They towed it away. It said that on the program and they towed them away. But it's all legit within a certain context. In certain private land, private roads, these guys are setting up a real money-making business. 450 quid to get their car back. Parked in a private road. The car was worth about £200. You should have left it with them. You should have gone in and put the old registration document down so you can keep it. I don't want it back. <laughs> but, but actually, that is quite serious. That sounds a bit similar. So you can imagine how people feel about these wheel clampers, can't you? Particularly where they're operating. I know how Ryan feels, but he's come through that now. And God's helped him. God's helped him. So that is what these tax collectors were like. And of course, just like I've indicated with this other uh, thing, the wheel clamper, this sort of occupation didn't draw the best characters. So tax collectors, I mean, the whole job, whether you were a bad one or a very bad one, it required you to have a pretty thick skin. You probably needed to be pretty greedy. You probably needed to not be afraid of a bit of violence. You probably needed to be a bit okay at intruding into people and forcing yourself on people. So it probably wasn't the best characters in the world that went for a tax-collecting job. So with that in mind, it is quite amazing to find that the man forsaken of God is the Pharisee, and the man who is found by God or finds God is actually the tax-collector. And actually, that is quite an impact when you really understand what the story is about. So let's quickly look at the two. First of all, the man forsaken by God. Let's look at verse 9, because Jesus is very clear what he's aiming at. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Jesus is warning of an attitude that locks people out from God. And this attitude is dangerous, it's toxic. And it's toxic whether you are a Christian, a religious person, or an irreligious person. An attitude that essentially can be summarised as I am confident in my own rightness. I am confident in my own rightness and I look down on other people. That is a total no-go area for God. Whoever you are, whatever your background, you are in a blind alley when it comes to God if that's your heart attitude. And I think it's quite serious because I actually think it's an attitude that's very prevalent in modern Britain. I think it's encouraged and and people talk about, you know, yourself and your assertiveness. And actually, I think it's a hugely relevant issue. And it's not just for religious hypocrites. It's very easy to say, oh, yes, they're religious hypocrites. Well, of course there are. I think there are. this attitude is sadly common in religion 
and common in churches sometimes. And it's equally toxic in that setting. We don't want to ignore that, and we will come back to that. But, but actually, it's an attitude also that is widely prevalent in, in, if you might like, non-religious circles. People, ordinary people, young people, teenagers, students, older people, businessmen, housewives, university lecturers, teachers, doctors, dropouts, pensioners. You call it. There are a lot of people in our country and in our world, maybe many even in this room, who would perhaps find that this rang a few bells that they're confident of their own rightness and righteousness and they look down on other people. And it it can happen in all sorts of ways. As I've indicated in my little list, it's not just the wealthy in the top of the pile. People further down the pile do exactly the same thing. It's a common attitude. It's an unfortunately dangerous attitude, but it's common. And do you know, it's more dangerous than the occult. The occult is only really dangerous when it promotes this attitude, which of course it often does. The occult is often about a sort of self-control, controlling things and a pride and an ability to to bring uh, other things under your control. In that sense, it's dangerous as well. But what I really want to make the point is that we can see obvious danger areas like that, but this attitude, Jesus says, and he should know, is really, really deadly when it comes to having dealings with God. Let's just quickly look at what the main points are in verse 11 and 12 that Jesus tells about this man. It's very simple and, and, and it's a sort of expose in, as I say, cartoon form about, about him. It says that he stood up and prayed about himself. <laughs> the margin will say prayed to himself. So you could have easily translated that, prayed about himself or prayed to himself. There's a sort of choice, I think, in the way you translate it. But it does tell you a lot that he stood up. The other guy stood, but he stood rather differently. He stood up. He was prepared to look God in the face. If I meet God, I can say, I can handle God. I'll tell him a few things. I mean, you hear that today too uh, in agnostic and atheistic circles. I, I don't need to kowtow to God and scrape the ground and, you know, bow down. I, I've got a few things I'd say to him. But he, he's, this guy's not like that. He's got a religious version. He is very confident that he keeps all the rules and all the laws which he recites and he's going to be okay with God because of what he does. And it says he prayed about himself or to himself. Now, here's a frightening thing. You can pray to yourself, not to God. That's quite, actually... It's quite scary. And the person who is saying this is God. This is Jesus giving us this story. This comes from the Son of God. This is inside knowledge. And from heaven's perspective, there can be people who are praying to themselves. God's just not involved. He's not interested. He's not going to answer. He's not listening. Or he's listening and assessing. But... It's scary. It's not getting to God. It's not achieving. It's not finding God. It's not engaging. It's not doing nothing. He's praying to himself. It says in the Bible, God hears the humble and contrite heart, which is going to be the theme Jesus gets. God needs you to come humbly. That is a big, big factor in Christianity. It's a big factor with God full stop. We'll see it in a moment. But this guy is not coming humbly. He is content with himself. And sadly, he gets nowhere. Then there's the man found by God. And that's the tax collector. Now, he feels a miserable mess. 
When he's out there in the street, he must be a bit of a hard nut to even be a tax collector. But inside, he is absolutely in turmoil about his own failure. He feels unworthy, he's self-despairing, he knows he's greedy, he knows he's exploited people. You remember Zacchaeus, who was probably a very bad tax collector, by the way. Zacchaeus almost certainly was one of the ones that did his own custom and stuff and ripped people off that way, licensed to collect money. So he was that sort, probably, from the detail in the story. He was like a Zacchaeus. He just knew inside that he was terrible. Although he would have perhaps met the Pharisee on the road and maybe eyeballed him and insisted that the Pharisee gave him some tax, actually before God, he was absolutely broken. And his heart was just uh, grieved with himself. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now here is the big thing. That always swings heaven's door open. A cry for God's mercy always opens the door to heaven. The Bible tells us God is rich in mercy. It tells us his mercy endures forever. If you want to be on a winner with God, you start moving in on his mercy. His mercy endures forever. If he's got a soft spot, if I can put it that way reverently, it's his mercy. When you appeal to him for mercy, he's rich, it says, in mercy. And this tax collector engaged with God. God heard his prayer. And Jesus makes this amazing statement in verse 14. He went home justified before God. And that is a pretty amazing statement. Justified before God. You, most of you will know the word justified. We've probably preached about it before if you're a regular at church or a Christian. But, but it is worth just a moment to linger on it. Justified means that this man, with his appalling track record, a known sort of shady character, inevitably, with all his mixture of, you know, probably tough man and greedy man and exploitive man, all that mixed in his mess, this man went home justified, meaning made right, made righteous, made holy before God, justified before God found clean and clear, accepted, no stain on his character. What more do you want? Absolutely clean before God. Is that not amazing? Justified before God. I mean, we just get so used to the terminology that I do. I'd need to shake myself, get myself, I'd bang my head on the wall if I had enough hair to do it, and say, listen to the Bible, John. God says he went home justified before God. On what basis, for goodness sake? He went home made righteous and justified. A silly little phrase, but it's useful. Just as if I'd never sinned. What does justify mean? Justified, it means just as if I'd never sinned. It's quite a useful way of remembering the basic point. Justified before God is just as if I'd never sinned. Made righteous, acceptable, cleaned up, spotless. Now, why justify the tax collector? Why justify him? Does God like groveling? Is God a sadist? Does God wait until we're sort of absolutely groveling before him and then does he sort of quietly wave his hand and get a sort of buzz out of it and saying, right, now you're you're sort of groveling enough, I'll let you off. No, no, that is not how it is at all. 
The fact is, the tax collector, hear this, had a right assessment of himself, and the Pharisee was believing a lie. Now, that's the problem. One of them is moving in truth, and the other is moving in lies. The reality is, we are all sinners. And the Pharisee was full of sin. Pride, envy, greed. He probably didn't even keep the law as successfully as he thought he did. Or he, but the big stuff of the law, envy, pride, greed, arrogance, you know, probably all sorts of things were bubbling in his heart. But he didn't recognize it at all. And he saw himself as totally okay and right. And able to stand confidently before God or man as someone really good. But actually, the Bible says, all of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And fall short is just what it sounds like, fall short. So if you've got a target and you're firing an arrow at the target and I fire my arrow and it falls 10 yards short, you fire yours and it falls one foot short, you don't hit the target, you don't hit the target. We all fall short. This Pharisee is like, it's much more dramatic than that. He's like a man standing on a ladder claiming he's reached the moon and mocking the guy still on the ground. Okay, he may do some stuff better than the tax collector, but sin is still big in his heart. He's way short of the glory of God. He's way short of of God's standards. No one is righteous in their own merits. God says, God is holy. You know, God's given us some indication. If you were to come in your own merits into my presence, look at the Ten Commandments, And never break one of them once. (laughs) Never break one of them once. That's not God just saying that. He's trying to get a a plumb line or or a mirror and say, look, that's what we're talking about. That's what righteousness is. It's not not just don't don't avoid some of the worst ones. Don't break any of them. The first three once. Just live in my presence. Live totally obedient to me. Live in harmony all the day, 24/7 with me. Can't do it. No, Lord, I can't do it. That's why you need a saviour. Or take another standard. What about Jesus? Can you be like my son 24-7? No, Lord, I can't. Well, then you need to understand that when you come to me, you don't come bringing your own righteousness. You don't come pleading your own list of successes. You come looking to me for mercy and grace. And there is always grace. Come and ask for help at the throne of grace in your time of need. There's always grace. God's presence requires holiness. We don't achieve it at all. Something else has to happen. So actually, our, our tax collector has a right view of himself and our Pharisee has a lot, is living a lie and has a wrong view. But you could still ask the next question, how come God can say that the tax collector can be justified? Aren't we in a state where we've got two who, okay, both are outside the pale, both are forsaken. No, that's not how it is. The tax collector went home justified before God. So is God just ignoring sin? Is that what God does? Well, this is a parable, and a parable, as I said to you, is a cartoon. You need a lot more to understand the whole story, a lot more. And um, we get a lot more in the Bible. This justified before God is not easily achieved by God, if I can put it that way. It's not something that God just says, okay, I dismiss the sin and forget it. Let me take you to another character, actually to a real Pharisee. 
a real Pharisee one day, who was probably exactly like this one in the story, one day had his eyes opened and changed completely and became like, in attitude, the tax collector. His name was Saul when he was a Pharisee and he became Paul after his conversion. And the Apostle Paul was once an epitome of this, tax, of this Pharisee attitude, but he came to a point where he saw that actually everything he did that he thought was good was stung, is the word he used about it, dung. And actually, that is a very strong word. And it is a four-letter word for us, would be an appropriate word to think of. And you can think of it without having to get too embarrassed. He talks very strongly about his good deeds. He said they were rubbish. They were dumb. And he said, I was the chief of sinners. And so wonderfully, he came from being pharisaical to being like the tax collector. And that's where the breakthrough came. And hallelujah, Pharisees can become saved. They can become humble. Hallelujah, there is hope. Paul shows us that. And when Paul was saved, he tried to explain what had happened many times. He successfully explained, I would say. But sometimes he told it quite simply. And there's one occasion in Acts 13, which I'm just going to read two verses for you. You can look at it if you want to, but I'm just going to read them. In Acts 13, he's explaining what happened to him. And he says this in verse 38. He's talking about his own testimony. Verse 38 of 13. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus... The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. So he gives us a little more biblical detail. Same Bible, same revelation. How do you get justified before God? Well, it's not merely that you, uh, you, know, you grovel a bit and then God says forget it. That's certainly nothing like it. What the humility opens up is a huge receiving of a wonderful forgiveness of sins that is possible because of Jesus. Paul says that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Isn't that beautiful? There is a basis for what the tax collector experienced. And that basis is that Jesus Christ has died for your sin. That is the basis. Through Jesus. And then Paul spells it out a bit more. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Because he's understood that. He's been in both places. He's been the Pharisee and he's been in the tax collector's shoes. And he understands where real grace comes from. He understands where real justification comes from. He knows that it's the cross of Jesus that is the answer to our need. It's that Jesus died for us and bore our sins so that we might come freely to God, forgiven in him. And we always come on that basis. That is how we work as Christians. That's why the cross is never old news. It's never history, forget it. It's actually vital to us every day. We stand on the ground of grace, don't we? We stand on the the holy ground that Jesus has won for us, where justice and mercy met in the cross of Jesus Christ. So whoever you are, if you recognise your need, whether you are a Pharisee like actually Saul was, or whether you are a real rogue like the tax collector was, actually when you recognise your need and you need forgiveness and mercy, you will always find God and be found by God. That's what's needed. 
That's where it starts. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've been sort of on the edge and struggling with it, it starts by really getting a right view. God doesn't need you. You need God. (laughs) And you need his love and forgiveness. And you need to come humbly with no holds barred, as it were, just as I am, without one plea. That's how we come to God. But if you're confident of your own rightness, and maybe you look down on other people, including Christians, or people who've got need a crutch, need this, need that, a bit stupid, whatever you think, you are in a really serious position. You're never going to find God. You're never going to engage with God. God's actually quite tough in his own way, and he's not going to play ball at that level. He will, as it were, forsake you. He will just stand back. And you will not engage with him until you understand the truth that you need him and you need his forgiveness and you need his refreshing and and renewing and changing. But I think the final thing I want to say is that Christians, we can... I mean, when I read this, I think, well, I've I've done that. I've become a Christian. Hallelujah. And I I hope most of you do. You know, I've done it. I think I recognize... And I do recognize it. Of course I recognize it. I recognize I needed Jesus. Many of you will amen that and say, oh, yes, very good, John. You're a nice little gospel. No, no, listen. It's not a gospel alone. Jesus didn't tell this parable only as a gospel message. Parables weren't that. We made them gospel messages, and they have the gospel in them. I hope that's come through. But actually, they are statements of truth. They're told as truth statements. For example, the parable of the sower. Just to give you an example. It's not purely a gospel message. It's about how you receive the word anytime. The word is good seed. You can be a Christian and it bounces off you because you don't take it in. Or the birds of the air, devil snatches it away before it germinates. Or you allow it to be choked or you receive it and it brings fruit in your life. That's true of the gospel, but it's true of any word. It's true of the word you're hearing this morning. And, and the same is true of this parable and other parables. They're, not, they're, they're, they're truths. They're challenges from the heart of God. And this one has a challenge for all of us. Verse 9 can be true of us. It can be true of us. Of course it can. Otherwise, Jesus was just wasting his time. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus gave a warning shot. Be careful. You are in a dead end with God. <laughs> so sometimes when we really, really are struggling and thinking, I don't know, just need to take a step back and say, have I got this problem? Is it maybe here that I'm pretty confident that my judgments are right on all these things? And actually, I'm looking down at everybody else, and at the moment, God's saying, you're having a great time with yourself down there. How about talking to me? You're talking to yourself most of the time. And uh, sometimes you're praying to yourself as you pray, oh God, I do wish other people were more like this and more like that. I'm really friendly. I really do this. It's a shame they don't. Um, you know, it's a shame they're not more committed. It's a shame they're not serving better. Like I, of course, serve. You know I serve in several areas. And, you know, we could actually, if we're not careful, we can do it. We can do it without hardly noticing. And, and, and it just needs watching because Jesus is warning us. He's saying, hey, guys, you won't get connect with God. And here's the way that you connect with God. And it comes out, Jesus makes it really clear at the end, verse 14b, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, that's the cardinal principle of my kingdom. It is the cardinal principle comes out again and again and again in the New Testament. If you humble yourself, God can exalt you. If you exalt yourself, God may humble you, but you won't be connecting with him. 
real spiritual promotion comes from God to the humble. That's how it always works. It comes from God to the humble. God initiates, but he's looking for humble and contrite heart. That's what I dwell with, those of a humble and contrite heart. Not too worried about the external. Could be a tax collector, could be a Pharisee, could be a Saul, could be a tax collector. Could be a Zacchaeus, could be a Saul. But if they've got a humble heart, I'm in business with them. Isn't that great? And isn't it challenging? Do you know what I mean? It's got both to it, hasn't it? You think, God sort of almost, you think, well, you know, Saul got it all right, Zacchaeus got it all wrong. They're almost two examples, living examples of the guys in this parable. And God engaged with them both because of their ultimate humility and recognition of, of their sin and their need. But it says, Jesus says in this last phrase I read to you, he who humbles himself will be exalted. So actually, you can do something about it, which is always good news. You can humble yourself. You think, well, I really want to do business with God. Great. Well, here's something you can do. You can humble yourself. So well, how do I do that? I don't know. You've got to sort that out. But you can humble yourself. And, and, and don't, don't, be careful. Don't say, circumstances humbled me. You know, circumstances don't necessarily humble you. It's your reaction to circumstances that humbles you. Sometimes we're stupid and we're very dog, dogged and God crunches us on something, you know, something really goes wrong and we go humble. That's a shame we had to wait for a disaster, but at least we got there. But actually you can hit a disaster and get worse, get more entrenched, get more arrogant. more. And so actually circumstances are not the answer. We're not fatalists here. You humble yourself. Now you could do that without any disaster. That's good news, isn't it? You could just be humble without waiting for something to go wrong. I, I, I personally would rather do that. <laughs> And I think, you know, God says, keep humble. Keep just before me. You know, don't, don't get into that exalt yourself thing. Be careful and remember always you're a debtor to mercy alone. So as I'm finishing, and I am, let's just have a, a real sense of encouragement, actually. Because although there's a challenge here, and I want there to be a challenge, I think I want you encouraged as well. You know, you can feel a bit of a weak mess. You can feel a failure. And you could feel, well, I, I think my prayers are pretty inarticulate and a bit faltering. And the Jesus who told this parable is the same Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for you and listening to your prayers. He, this is not a historical sort of anachronism, little thingy, it's way back there, what an interesting story. This same Jesus is the one in whose name we pray. Is that not right? I talk to him, don't you talk to him? We come in the name of Jesus. We come and he's at the right hand of the Father and he's giving us an inside story. This will work well. If you understand this, you're going to engage with me and my Father. This will work well. If you want to pray, don't say, oh Lord, I can't pray the best prayers. I can't say it very well and I'm a mess and I let you down. No, no, that's, that's right. Now, focus on that and then come out of that into humility of asking me to be with you, of asking what you want. Come to the throne of grace and ask for help. And, and, and mercy is the line. I don't deserve it. No, you don't deserve it. But you will get it if you come the right way. And so actually, the tax collector's prayer is a massive encouragement for everybody. There shouldn't be anybody in this room that goes out this morning and thinks, I'll never be able to pray to God. I can't engage with God. God doesn't hear my prayers. And I bet some of you said that. 
Because nobody needs to say that. Nobody needs to go out and say, God doesn't hear my prayers. You can come, that Jesus told it for this reason. You can come like the tax collector. That's the starting point. Now, it might be for some of you, it really is a starting point. You've not even become a Christian properly or at all. And you need to understand, this is the big start. You come and say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. But for many of us, we may have well genuinely done that. We need to remember that it sort of doesn't change. (laughs) You don't become a good Christian and then start arguing your merits. Think, I started like that, but now actually I'd like you to know I do tithe, which is actually quite true. I don't commit adultery, which is true. I mean, I'm up there with the uh, dear old uh, Pharisee. I could list most of the same things I actually do. I think I I do most of what he did. I think think within reason. Just check yourself out. I haven't robbed anybody. Yeah, I'm not an adulterer. And I, yeah, I do tithe, actually. (laughs) Pretty good then. Oops, I'm with the wrong bloke. <laughs> oh, I'm deciding with the wrong one. Um, so actually, you, you know, you can get there without noticing it. You've got to stay, not, not doing good stuff, but stay remembering the basis on which you come to before God. And you've got to think, Lord, you're my father. I'm a debtor to mercy alone. Aren't you? It's an old hymn had that line in it. I'm a debtor to mercy alone. Let's stand together for a moment. And can we have the band up too, please? Well, I want us just to, to thank Jesus and worship for a few minutes, really, just to praise the Lord. But before, while they're gathering, before we do that, actually, let's just go quiet for a minute. Because if you're here and you haven't ever committed your life to Jesus, this is an opportunity to do it. Um, and we'll just quietly just do that. What, what I would say to you is that you need to, even now with me, sort of maybe just pray this prayer. I don't know, it has to be precisely repeated my words. It has to be what you say in your heart. So just quietly stand before God. Let's all do that. And I, I want you to say something like this. Lord God, I thank you that you love me when I didn't love you. And I thank you that you, Jesus, died for me when I didn't give you a thought. Thank you for dying on the cross because you love me. Thank you that you are ready to find me and receive me. I need you, Lord. I want you to be my saviour. Forgive me for the things I've done wrong. I, I'm very sorry, Lord, for the ways I've spoken about you and ignored you. I admit that I've lived my life without you.